Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the peace offerings in Leviticus chapter 3. For more articles that we've produced that will help you in your reading of Leviticus, you can check out some links down there in the show notes. Before we get into this episode, we wanted to remind you about our upcoming course on a biblical theology of ritual with Dr. Drew Johnson. This course will be held from May 10th through 15th here in Birmingham, Alabama, and you're not going to want to miss it. For details and for registration, you can find a link in the show notes. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are edified by this conversation about the peace offering. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes, and also with Alistair Roberts, who's joining us from England. Uh, Jim Jordan is on vacation uh, and uh, will rejoin us in this podcast uh, when he gets back to town. Uh, We've been going through the offerings of the Levitical system over the last number of episodes, and we'll be resuming that uh, with this episode. We've talked about the first couple of chapters of Leviticus. Uh, the first chapter has to do uh, is the dis- prescription for the ascension offering. Uh, the second chapter is the prescription for the tribute offering, which is usually translated as grain offering. Uh, it's an offering of vegetable products, grains uh, in various forms that are presented along with animal offerings. And then the third chapter of Leviticus deals with the peace offering. As I pointed out a number of weeks ago when we first started looking at Leviticus, these three chapters form a unit within the, uh, within the context of Leviticus. Leviticus is divided up into divine speeches. Uh, there are 37 speeches in Leviticus. That is, 37 times the text says, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, or some slight variation of that. Uh, and there are 30, 37 speeches, the middle central speech, uh, the, one, uh, the 19th speech is at the beginning of chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement. So that puts the Day of Atonement at the center of the, of, this, uh, of, the, of the structure of Leviticus. If you take that structure, then the first three chapters uh, form a single unit. Um, one, one starts out with the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, and you don't have a phrase like that until you get to four one, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying. And so in some way, the first three offerings that are described, the ascension offering in chapter one, the tribute offering in chapter 2 and the peace offering in chapter 3 are, should be understood as a cohesive unit. They're going together. And I suggested the last time I, I noted this that the, there's a, I think there's a liturgical logic to this and also a kind of redemptive historical logic. Liturgical logic is that in the actual worship of Israel, ascension offerings or whole burnt offerings were always the foundation of all the offerings. The priests offered ascension offerings morning and evening Every day, the fire was kept burning on the altar constantly. And so any offerings that were placed on the altar after that were in addition to ascension offerings. They're the foundational offering. The ascension offering was always accompanied by grain offerings, tribute offerings, uh, and then um, peace offerings at feasts, for example. Uh, A worshiper would bring a peace offering, and that would be added to the ascension offering with its grain offering. And the peace offering would have its own tribute offering along with it. So the sequence is... Uh, in the text is the sequence, actual liturgical sequence. Uh, as we'll see, 
uh, next week and perhaps in some other episodes. Um, there are also um, uh, sin offerings and trespass offerings which may precede the ascension offering in certain sequences. Uh, but in the basic basic structure, you have ascension and ascension into the peace offering. That's the that's the picture. The redemptive historical rationale is that the first three chapters lay out a kind of ritual version of the sequence of uh, events in the book of Exodus. Israel comes up out of Egypt. They ascend out of Egypt. The Lord brings them up and they come up with tribute. They come up with gifts for the Lord. Uh, and they come to Mount Sinai in order to sacrifice. The goal of the Exodus from the beginning is to go out into the wilderness in order to sacrifice. And in the Hebrew terminology, that, that particular word, the verb that's used to tra that's translated as sacrifice, means to slaughter something for a meal. It's a specific reference to the peace offering. So when Moses confronts Pharaoh and says, let my people go that they may serve me, let my people go, the Lord says, let my people go that they may sacrifice to me in the wilderness, he's saying, let my people go that they can, so that they can hold a feast, a sacrificial feast in the wilderness. And the particular kind of offering that involves a feast for the Israelites is the peace offering. And so the goal of the Exodus is, you could say, to bring Israel out of Egypt so that they ascend out of Egypt and come to Sinai where they can have peace offerings. And in keeping with that, it's significant that the peace offering is first mentioned in the Bible at Sinai. It's the first time we ever hear about peace offerings uh, is when Israel is camped at Sinai and they're receiving the, the Mosaic Covenant. We could debate the um, meaning of the terminology used for the peace offering. It can carry a number of different connotations, connotations about peace, communion, um, or well-being, these sorts of things. And I suspect each of these has some sort of, um, it's part of the connotation of what's taking place. But it is um, an event, I think, with a lot of New Testament um, significance when we talk about the context of communion and our celebration of communion. I think there are ways in which we should see that connecting particularly back to the celebration of the peace offering, this enjoyment of a feast with God. Yeah, let me, let me uh, pick up on a couple of your comments there. One is the, the various uh, connotations of the, the term, the Hebrew term for peace offering. Uh, it's translated as, as you said, well-being or completeness. It has that connotation. And it's interesting to trace that terminology and the, and the references to the peace offering as you go through the book of Leviticus. Um, Leviticus uh, refers to the peace offering repeatedly, even when it's talking about other offerings, interestingly. It refers to the peace offering in context where it's giving moral law, uh, and then it uses the terminology of peace. It uses some version of either shalom, shalem, the verb form, uh, in in other contexts too. So that uh, there's a there's a peace theme that threads all the way through the Leviticus that begins with chapter three that uh, describes the describes the peace offering and the right of the peace offering specifically. And I, I wanted to point out a couple of things, a couple of examples of that. Uh, for example, in Leviticus four. This is the this is the ritual for the sin offering or the purification offering, and uh, in verses eight through ten, it's describing the portions of the animal that are taken from the animal and put on the altar, and it mentions the fat, the fat that covers the entrails, kidneys, the lobe of the liver; those are all removed, 
And verse 10 parenthetically says, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. So in the middle of describing the sin offering or the purification offering, you have uh, a reference to the peace offering. Uh, the same parts of the animal that are taken from the peace offering are taken from the sin offering and put on the altar. The text doesn't have to do that, doesn't have to make that reference. It can describe the animal portion, the organs that are going to be burned, just list them without mentioning the peace offering. But it does bring up the peace offering again in the context about talk, uh, in the context of talking about another offering. And I think that's it's significant that the these are two offerings that are introduced at Sinai. Uh, they're introduced at the time uh, the peace offering is introduced when Israel's cutting covenant with the Lord before the tabernacle is built. And the purification offering is introduced when the tabernacle is built, and it's, it's an offering that exists in order to maintain the purity of the tabernacle in the midst of the people, so that the Lord will remain in His tabernacle. So those two offerings come into uh, prominence. They actually are, they begin to be offered at the time the tabernacle system is put in place. And they're linked together by, and not least by this, uh, by the fact that the same parts of the animal are burned and by the reference to the peace offering. Uh, and we could say that the sin offering, the purification offering, exists in order to uh, make it possible for Israel to celebrate peace offerings. The reason why you have to have purification offerings is so that Israel can have meals with God. So all this other offering is oriented, it's oriented to, use Thomistic language, the sin offering or purification offering is ordered to the peace offering. Uh, the other offerings are, come to their climax or come to their end uh, in the meal that they have with God. Another really interesting repetition of uh, reference to the peace offering is in chapter 19 of Leviticus. Leviticus 19 is largely moral law, we would say. There's uh, uh, repetitions of uh, parts of the Ten Commandments. You shall reverence father and mother. Keep my Sabbaths. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, later on in verse 18. Uh, don't hit your countrymen in the heart. Don't slander your neighbor. Uh, there's rules about uh, mercy to the to the poor and needy. Don't reap to the corner of your uh, corner of your field. Leave the gleanings behind for those who glean. So most of this has to do with those kinds of laws for Israel. Uh, but then in in uh, in the middle of all that, or toward the beginning of all that, uh, in 19.5, it says, When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it the next day, and the next day, but what remains until the third day shall be burned with fire. So if it is eaten on the third day, it is an offense, it will not be accepted. Everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity. He has profaned the holy thing of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from his people. So in, in the midst of what's mostly rules that have to do with life in the land, there's this repetition of a rule concerning the eating of the peace offering. That rule is given in Leviticus chapter 7. Now it's reiterated, but in a different context. So the peace offering is linked up with the other offerings. The peace offering is now being linked up with life in the land and the life of generosity and righteousness in the land. Uh, the peace offering is an embodiment, a ritual embodiment of the kind of wholeness and fellowship and peace that Israel will enjoy in the land if they keep the covenant. So the, the peace offering again gets, um, the meaning gets kind of transmuted as you go through the, the course of Leviticus as it's, uh, those rules are repeated and the peace offering comes up again and again in the book. It contrasts in some respects with the earlier ascension offering, not least in the detail that it's a male or female 
that's brought forward from the herd or um, from the flock. Whereas in the earlier cases, it's specifically um, stipulated that it should be a male from the herd flock or the flock. Yeah, do you have a theory about the, uh, uh, the rationale for that? Um, you've written an article on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that was so long ago. Wasn't it? <laughs> it was a while ago. Um, I think it's connected with uh, um, the first one. It's very much representing the people in a way that, in this case, it can be the average worshipper can um, either can rep. I, I would imagine that there would be decisions to be made on whether it would be a male or female that was brought forth. But both of those could be legitimate under certain circumstances. Whereas in the earlier case, it is um, the representative purpose of the animal is such that it must be a male. In the latter case, it's the offering has more of a private character to it, perhaps. And so is associated more with the status of the worshipper. Yeah, I think one of the keys to, I think that's correct. I think one of the keys to understanding how the, the sex of the animal works is to look at um, the way that uh, the, the sin or, or purification offering um, deals with the sex of the animal. Um, that's, I keep going to chapter 4 of Leviticus. We're supposed to be talking about chapter 3, but uh, chapter 4 keeps coming into play somehow. But if, as you go through that, there are um, several different scenarios for the sin offering. And the different scenarios have to do with the person who is offering, uh, who's making the offering. Uh, if it's a priest, then you have uh, a certain kind of animal and it has to be male, a male uh, bovine, a bull. Uh, if it's the whole people that sins, it has to be a bull, uh, a male bovine again. Uh, if it's a leader, it has to be male, but it's a goat. Uh, that's in Leviticus 4.23. If one of the common people sins, this is uh, Leviticus 4.27.28. If one of the commoner sins, then what he brings has to be female. Uh, verse 28 says, uh, He shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect for his sin which he has committed, and so on. So there's a, uh, I think that confirms the point you were making, that there's a representation aspect to the male animal linked up with the role of the priest, the role of the, the civil leader, a, a lesser animal than the animal that's offered by the priest, but still a male animal. And then for the commoner, who's part of the bridal people, there's a female animal that's brought for the purification offering. And that, I think, uh, gives us a, 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 a template for understanding the, the uh, pres sometimes prescribed sex of the animal, sometimes the, the, the fact that the animal's sex is left up to the uh, left up to the worshiper. That's the case, as you said, in chapter 3 with the peace offering. It can be either a male or female. The worshiper makes that decision. Uh, and uh, that uh, seems to uh, give a, a certain kind of flexibility in the symbolism of the animal. Is it going to be a... Uh, is it representing the worshiper uh, in some kind of representative capacity coming into the presence of God and enjoying a feast or the bridal capacity uh, but the the peace offering kind of has both of these dimensions going, and the worshiper can can choose between the two. 
I want to pick up on your uh, your comments about the New Testament application of the peace offering also, because I've been I've thought and uh, lectured on this a number of times over the last couple of years. Uh, Leviticus 7 gives uh, additional details about the peace offering. Leviticus 6 and 7 give, they run through all of the offerings again. They're all laid out in verse in chapters 1 through 6, basically, uh, through the first half of 6. But then they're laid out again from a different perspective in chapters, second half of chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, and in some cases, the emphasis in the second reiteration, second iteration, is the role of the priest and the distribution to the priest. But beginning in 7.11, we have a description of different forms of peace offering, uh, the different occasions when a peace offering can be offered. Uh, and there's a peace offering that can be offered by way of thanksgiving. That's one form. And there are peace offerings that can be offered by way of a vow, to fulfill a vow, or as a free will offering. And the, the uh, use of the flesh and the retention of the flesh differs depending on whether it's a thanksgiving offering or a votive or free will offering. The length of time you have to eat the meat differs between those two. That's the rule that's being given there. Uh, but the, the fact that you have a peace offering that is said to be by way of thanksgiving, the uh, Hebrew word there is todah, that links it up even more strongly with the Eucharist. You were saying, pointing out that the, the peace offering links up with the Eucharist by being a, fe- a festive offering, uh, by signifying peace with God, by signifying communion with God, and, and being communion with God. Uh, and then uh, this particular form of the peace offering, the todah, uh, adds this element of thanksgiving. So you actually have a, a peace offering that is uh, literally, in the etymological sense, Eucharistic. You offer it because you're giving thanks for some act of deliverance. And what's what's interesting, particularly when you uh, look at how that um, notion of thanksgiving and how this thanksgiving offering is spoken of and used in the Psalter, you realize that the thanksgiving offering, which is an animal offering, is being linked up with certain kinds of verbal praise, certain, certain kinds of verbal worship. So there are certain psalms that are psalms of thanksgiving. There are certain psalms that are todah psalms, and they have a particular form to them. They have a, a, a commonly have a particular form that involves, obviously, thanksgiving to God. It involves uh, some kind of uh, recital of the works of God, what God has done for the worshiper. It often includes an idea of memorial, that uh, something is being uh, presented before God to, for his remembrance and recollection. So you have those elements of um, a, a todah or thanksgiving psalm that parallels the todah peace offering. And you put those two things together, the festive offering and the thanksgiving psalms. And what you basically have is an Old Testament version of the Christian Eucharist. Because the various elements that I've just described in the todah psalms are elements of traditional Eucharistic prayers. There are acts of thanksgiving. There's a recital of God's acts in history, um, more or less elaborate, depending on what tradition of Eucharistic prayer you're using. And then you have uh, a memorial idea. In the Eucharistic terminology, it's the anamnesis, something that memorializes before God that he would remember his covenant and keep his promises. So it seems like the Eucharist is very specifically growing out of this particular kind of peace offering, this Toda offering. 
this is an argument that uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, makes in uh, one of his essays in his volume on the theology of the liturgy. And he's drawing on a German biblical scholar whose name I'm forgetting at the moment, who investigated the background of the Eucharist and tied it back into the Toda offering. And I, I think makes a very convincing case that the, uh, I think that the Eucharist is bringing together the whole system of offerings, but there's a very direct connection between the way that the Toda offering as a meal offering, a festive offering, and the use of uh, Thanksgiving and the Psalter, how those things merge together in the Eucharist. A very, a very strong case to say that this is an important part of the, of the background of our peace offering, the, the Eucharist. When you read Hebrews 13, I think it brings that out when it talks about the continual offering of a sacrifice of praise, that this isn't just a loose expression that anyone but Paul is using within Hebrews. <laughs> it's, uh, it's picking up the language of the Septuagint in Leviticus 7, and I think also somewhere in the Psalms, which refer to the peace offering for thanksgiving in precisely these terms. And so, whereas Israel was very much in the Old Covenant um, defined by a continual burnt offering twice daily and a tribute offering, the New Covenant is really distinguished by its continual thanksgiving offering, its perpetual Eucharist, as it were. And the way that these things are also coordinated with song in the reign of David, I think, helps us to understand the way that it's connected with our offering of the fruit of lips within the New Testament, that we continue this sacrifice of praise, this um, communion or peace offering, this continual peace offering through the offering of our song, our lips, and that this isn't just a loose expression that is being used, but it's a very technical reference back to a specific type of offering that is continued within the life of the church and perpetuates it, is perpetuated within it, and defines what it means to be involved in Christian worship. And then you could make the additional move uh, within Leviticus, as I was pointing out earlier, the peace offering uh, comes up not only in the liturgical instructions, but also comes up in the the land portion, the book of the the uh, the, the book of holiness in the latter part of Leviticus, which has to do with life in the land. A peace offering is still relevant to life in the land, so you have this kind of um, movement uh, of uh, peace out from the liturgical setting into the into the moral setting of, uh, of daily life. And I think the same kind of thing you can see in the New Testament teaching about Thanksgiving, obviously. Uh, we, have a, we have a ritual of Thanksgiving that takes place in our gathered communion, communities. Uh, but then Paul tells us we're supposed to live lives of continuous Thanksgiving. Uh, he tells Timothy that um, everything God created is good and everything is to be received with Thanksgiving. It's sanctified by the Word of God in prayer. And that prayer that sanctifies everything that we receive is, uh, among other things, a prayer of thanksgiving. The thanksgiving is not just the, it's not confined to the moment, the Eucharistic, uh, the Eucharistic rite that we perform in church, but that sets the tone for lives of continuous thanksgiving, uh, where we're receiving everything that we, uh, everything that comes to hand with thanksgiving and consecrating it to uh, the Lord uh, by that act of thanksgiving. So, um, you know, you could say there's a, in, in both Leviticus and in the New Testament, uh, liturgies of thanksgiving at the sanctuary 
um, set the pattern for a liturgy of life of Thanksgiving outside the sanctuary. The sharing of a meal is also very important in understanding what covenant means. Um, it can often be an event that seals a union between two parties. And so the significance of who eats this and the fact of participation in eating this meal is a sign in itself of communion, of union, of peace that we can often, we maybe don't think enough about how significant it is to eat with someone. And yet in scripture, we see that act of eating together as often the climactic event of a current covenant ceremony. It's the, um, it's a public form of what we might have as the consummation of a wedding, um, is a private consummation of a covenant union. And the feast is the public form of that, as it were. It's one of the reasons why we talk about a wedding feast as something that consummates that wedding in some sense, that union. Jim Jordan has pointed out that there's a, the um, marital and the festive are brought together uh, in, in, uh, uh, in a particular way. Um, I mean, you have the, the idea of you have uh, marriage feasts as the culmination of, uh, as the of the wedding, as you said. A common meal is a, a kind of marital event in itself, as it were. Uh, we're being bound together to one another by eating at a common table. We're, we are one body because we partake of one loaf. One roast that comes out of the oven is sliced and distributed to everybody. So everyone gets a portion of the same roast. And so we're almost a physical sense. We're being brought together as we're sharing in the same, in the same food. Uh, and uh, we're being bound together in, uh, as, a, as a body. Uh, so there's, there's this kind of quasi-marital dimension to every act of, uh, to every, every meal. And I think that you know, I, I think it is something that uh, we we don't give as much attention to in our in contemporary culture as uh, was the case in ancient Israel, for example, and I think in a lot of pre-modern cultures. And I suppose part of that is that our uh, experience of meals is often not a communal event. We have meals where we're sitting in front of the computer, continuing to work while we're eating our lunch, uh, mea culpa. Uh, we have uh, uh, dinners where everyone's everyone is gathered around the uh, sacred fire of the of, of Netflix uh, and not communing with each other. We're not in a circle looking at each other as we as we eat, but we're all together, transfixed by the image in front of us. Or you know, uh, fast food that we grab on the way home and eat in the car uh, by ourselves. So I think it's uh, it's just become less common to have meals as. Um, and in, in, in some ways, our lives are, are patterned in a way that uh, discourages meals as common events, meals as communal events. Participation is also associated with having a holy or clean status. And the person who is clean is able to participate. But anyone who's unclean um, and participates um, can be cut off from his people. So as this statement of holy things for holy people, that being given this food is a recognition or confirmation or um, an enjoyment of a particular status that you have to be clean first to participate. And as you participate, it's an acknowledgement and an enjoyment of your status as a member of the house. 
Yeah, I think that's that is an important uh, dimension to remember. There's uh, a proper emphasis. Uh, on hospitality and the Lord's table as a table of hospitality, but that's not an unbounded hospitality. It's not a it's not a hospitality with no demands. There's in in the Old Testament you had at least ceremonial requirements, as you pointed out, of cleanliness before you could rightly partake of the meal. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, Drew Johnson pointed out in his essay for the Theopolis uh, website and he'll develop in his course coming up in, in uh, May, is the fact that uh, uh, rituals have a, have a biography. They're part of a longer story. By the time a, a worshiper brings something into the sanctuary, he's already done something with the animal that he's brought into the sanctuary. He's already done something with the grain. Uh, and those are components of what he's bringing to the Lord. Uh, and even though it might be ritually perfectly in order, uh, there may be moral defects or moral impurities that uh, the Lord alone sees, and the Lord doesn't accept offerings that are coming from, you know, if you, if you were coming to the sanctuary and you uh, stole your neighbor's lamb in order to sacrifice somebody else's animal, the priest isn't going to know that, but the Lord is going to know that, and the Lord is not going to accept that offering. So there's this moral dimension to the offering uh, in, even in the Old Testament, it's not just like it's not as if you, if you were ceremonially pure, everything was okay. Uh, moral and ceremonial work together in the Old Testament system, uh, and uh, same is true in the New Covenant. There are uh, the the Lord's table, as I said, is a table of hospitality and welcome, but it calls people to repentance. Uh, Jesus uh, eats and drinks with sinners and calls them to repentance at the table, and there's a. Uh, uh, the table is the center of the church's disciplinary activity. It's uh, admitting to the table or excluding from the table. That's the, the apex of the church's authority that, the, that Jesus has conferred. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.